Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and this is episode three. How's everybody doing today, wherever you are, while you might be listening to this? Welcome back to Life After Business, the podcast. I am super pumped for today. John Warlow, who is a speaker, entrepreneur, author of two amazing books, one called Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, another one called The Automatic Customer, and past and present business owner, has got a ton of gold nuggets for you as he's giving his story about the many different businesses that he's owned, and then the current one, called The Value Builder System, where he has devoted his entire mission to helping business owners understand what the value of their business is and how to either create a company that can thrive without you as you reap the benefits or sell at the highest multiple possible on your terms. So without further ado, please enjoy the podcast interview with John Warlow. Well, good morning, John. Thank you for coming to the Life After Business podcast. Thanks for having me, Ron. So why don't you just give our our listeners a little bit of a rundown about how you came to where you are today? Yes. Yeah, so I've I've been involved, I guess, in four companies that I've exited um, and learned, I think, in that process, uh, this, this sort of drivers of company value, both from the standpoint of things that I I'd made I'd made the mistake of. I, I used to run a design and graphic design studio. And was kind of focused on revenue as our number one driver. And what I soon learned that, you know, when it came to selling that company, revenue was not the most important factor. Um, really how dependent the revenue was on me personally was was a, a big factor. And in fact, it, it really deeply depressed our uh, our value as an agency. Um, later, I went on to uh, build a market research company. And again, I learned an important lesson about the power of recurring revenue. When we first went to sell the business, there it was a project-based business, and um, and it didn't garner the kind of multiple that I was hoping that it would. And then and then over time, we transformed the business into a recurring revenue subscription business, and then uh, ultimately sold it to a public company in 2008, uh, based largely on the uh, you know on the fact that there was some recurring revenue, or at least you know in part that was a major driver. So again, but both by making mistakes, uh, I think I've, I've sort of learned a little bit about what drives company value, and, and, and try to institutionalize that, or you know document that in um, in the value builder system. So that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. So after you sold to the public company in 2008, what did you do? What was the first thing you did afterwards? Wow, the first thing. Um, I don't remember. I mean, I think it was probably, you know, after the deal was uh, was consummated, I think I I went and had a drink with our lawyer. <laughs> and and uh, Was he billing you for it? <laughs> uh, probably. Probably. I think we had a celebratory, you know, drink and and then um you know, and then and then the next, I think it was on a Thursday or Friday, and then and then we had to kind of get ready uh, to tell the staff that um, that that was something we'd done, and and so that was you know that was a fairly difficult conversation to kind of work through. So I, I think I fairly quickly uh, turned my attention to how we would uh, how we would communicate. Uh, how did you communicate communicate that to your staff? 
in our case, we uh, we brought everybody together. Um, we had a, a boardroom in in our company, and it was kind of standing room only. And we and I was there, and as was the sort of uh, the buyer, uh, you know, and a representative from the buying company. And uh, we, I think, we kind of ripped off the band aid and just said, you know. Um, I've come to the decision that that it, it was time for me to uh, to find a new owner and and try to position, you know, the benefits to the the employees, right? So obviously, it's destabilizing for employees when you sell a company. At the same time, there's opportunities, right? So they've you know been working for a small kind of entrepreneurial company, and all of a sudden they're working for a large publicly traded company, and so there are tremendous benefits in that, right? Namely, benefits themselves, health and dental benefits, et cetera. But I think, at least in case of our group, we had quite a few younger employees, and so it just present, it prevented, it gave them lots of uh, career mobility. I mean, one thing, you know, that's important, I think, is everybody realizes, employees realize that the the ceiling of their upward mobility in your company is walking through the door every day. When you walk into your office or shop or uh, factory floor, they're looking at the ceiling. And for some employees, that that might be fine, right? They might be looking up to you as your as the leader, et cetera. But for others, in particular, your more ambitious people, uh, they may look at you and say, I want to achieve a lot more than that. And I'm sure we had employees, in fact, I know I had employees who were who saw me as as uh, a problem you know, somewhat, <laughs> for their well, mo- no, upper mobility. Yeah, yeah, somewhat provincial in the way I ran the company and that they aspired to, to have a bigger job with more direct reports and more, you know, more revenue and more and more. And, and they probably saw me as, as an impediment. So, you know, there, so it's, lots it's of unknowns going on in the employees' heads. I mean, did you, where was your head at? Walk me through some of the dialogue that was going on inside of your head as you're going through that transition. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was probably uh, pretty, I was on to the next thing, to be honest with you. I mean, I think, um, I was, um, you know, I'd spent so much time focusing on the team, the employees, the company, building, building, building that I was, I think part of me was, was like, um, you know, uh, I'm, (laughs) did you already have the what's next planned in your head? No, no, I didn't No, But I mean, I, I was like, It's hard to describe in in words, but but you know, it, if employees were upset about the decision, um, that's unfortunate. But that was that I wasn't going to lose sleep over it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you're going through and you kind of switch the gears into now we've got very quantifiable tasks that we've got to get done in order to merge the company in together. You know, you're juggling some of the social and the political stuff going on with the employees. What was your role in the acquisition going forward? Oh, I, you know, I was to kind of continue to run the business that I had been running just in, in the context of, of uh, you know, uh, a much bigger company that had lots of different divisions and, and so forth. So I was, I was now, you know, I had a boss and, and I was trying to meet uh, the goals that we agreed to um, 
And so, yeah, I was, I was an employee again. I hadn't been an employee for a long time. So that was. And how, how long did you stay with the company? Uh, I don't remember the, uh, the length of time, to be honest, um, probably a year or so. And then, so was it, an, um, with the new roles of being an employee, I'm sure being an employee is not something that is genetically easy for entrepreneurs. So how did the, how did that whole dance work? Yeah. I mean, I, I do find it difficult to, to, to have a boss. I always sort of have, to be honest. So, you know, I just did a recent personality test. It was funny. I had one of those, like, you know, those Myers-Briggs tests or mm-hmm. Colby. I can't remember the, the platform that, um, that it was, but an advisor of ours said, Hey, would you do this test? And, you know, and it, and it gave you a score on four different dimensions. And one of them uh, was the need for independence. And, and, you know, it has like the median, like, and then there's a line and, and then every, every point you're away from that line means you're, you're sort of, you either need more or need less independence. And, and my kind of chart was very linear. I was, I was pretty close to the line, pretty close to the average, frankly, on all the different attributes. The one attributes that I was way off the charts on was the need for independence. So it was just a good reminder for me that um, I don't play nice in the sandbox. I never really have. It's, uh, you know, it's maybe it's a quirk, a personality quirk, whatever. But I, I'm just not a great uh uh, team player in a way. I like leading teams and winning. I'm just not great at being, <laughs> being, uh, you know, a good solid team player. Do that speaking of leading teams and create, and instead of playing in the sandbox, you like to create your own sandbox from, uh, the observations I've had of yourself. So give our listeners a little bit of a overview of what you're doing now with, uh, the value builder system. Uh, yeah, so, so we run something called the value builder system, which is a statistically proven way, uh, that entrepreneurs can improve the value of their company. And again, on average, uh, those that enter our program have a score of 59. Those that graduate with a score of 80 or more are getting 71% more for their business when they get offers than when they started. So it's, it, it adds a tremendous economic sort of value to their businesses. We license that platform to people like yourself. Ryan, where you are using it with um, the business owners that you work with. So that's our business model. And um, it's a software you know, package that people access. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, you know, um, it's, a, it's an exciting business for sure. Well, and for our listeners, the, the value builder system is the research and the uh, resources that I was finding as I was looking into value building and exit planning. And one of the unique things of John's research is 20,000 businesses have gone through this assessment. So John, can you give us a little bit of an overview? Like where do those 20,000 businesses come from? And then how long did it take to uh, aggregate that information? Yeah. So you're right. It's, it's more than 20,000 business owners now have, wow. uh, have used the value builder system, which is, which is exciting. They, um, they come from mostly, uh, Commonwealth countries, Anglicized countries. So United States, Canada, America, uh, America and the United States is different countries. United States, <laughs> Canada, um, UK, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, it's taken about three and a half, four years to amalgamate that, uh, that, that, that user base. And we analyze it every quarter. Uh, you know, we look at uh, 
basically statistics. We take all of the users of the tool for the quarter and then we compare them on a number of different metrics. Last quarter for the quarter ending um, uh, March 31st, 2016, for example, um, we looked at average multiple being offered to business owners and it, it settled in, I think, around 3.6 times uh, pre-tax profit. And for some people listening to that number, they may be like, wow, that, that number is really low. And, um, and again, remember that's average over thousands of users. We, we have outliers, right? So we have um, a group of our users that achieve a score of 80 or greater. And those business owners are getting offers, I think it was in the neighborhood of 6.2 times pre-tax profit last quarter. So again, it's, it, it, there is a there's an average multiple that business owners get, but but I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as entrepreneurs is we think that because companies in our industry trade at a specific multiple, it's it's a predestined that it's predestined that we're going to get the same multiple. And in fact, what we've seen is that uh, that there are examples where where owners get you know, half of what the industry averages because they've got the, a business that's really screwed up. And in other cases, they can get, you know, a 2x um, uh, bonus or premium, if you will, on what other people in their industry get because they've, they've got some of the things that, that we talk about in the value builder system. That, you know, the business isn't dependent on them personally. Um, and you've come you know, up with eight key drivers, fans. you know, after analyzing all this data, you've come up with eight key drivers that have the direct impact between the 3.6 and the 6.2, correct? Exactly. Yep. That's right. That's and right. So it's, go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's things like, you know, what, you know, obviously it's things like revenue, right? That's a no brainer. The larger companies get better offers. Growth potential is really important as well. How you can demonstrate to a buyer the opportunities that they have to, to, to grow your company are, is important. Uh, we call something called hub and spoke. It refers to how dependent your business is on you personally. That's a big a detractor from your valuation. Another one is the Switzerland structure. Uh, we're inspired by the country of Switzerland. We're looking at how dependent your company is on the three sort of stakeholders that companies often get dependent on, and namely a key customer, a key employee, or a key supplier. The, the companies that do well on Switzerland structure uh, are ones where they, they're independent of any one customer. They don't have a lot of customer diversification. They've got lots of supplier diversification, uh, and their employees are not holding them you know, hostage. So th those are a few of the drivers in the eight. And for the listeners, I'll link to those in the show notes and a little bit more information on each of those eight. So John, when you're going through the data of the 20,000 uh, assessments and is it through that process that you found the eight key drivers or explain how uh, you came up with the eight? Yeah, for sure. So the original algorithm was developed through a, a comprehensive quantitative market research study we did with business owners. We, we asked them uh, a litany of questions about uh, about their business, so obvious firmographic stuff like what industry are you in, how much revenue do you have, what you know, what your growth rate is. We also looked at psychographic, so their attitudes towards their business, um, their attitudes towards growth, etc. Uh, we looked at the way they'd structured their management team, if it was all dependent on them personally, or if they they they'd structured process in their business. Uh, we looked at technology, so we looked at this entire sort of litany of things, uh, different variables in their business, and then we asked the question: Have you received an offer to buy your business and if so at what multiple and then we performed a correlation and this goes back to stats 101 where we're looking for the strength of the relationship between each of the variables we tested and getting an offer to premium and we were able to establish that there were these eight key drivers 
that were highly correlated to getting a premium offer, meaning the people uh, that had those things in their business were much more likely to get a premium offer than those that didn't. And so those were the, the that's how we built the algorithm. Did and, you see uh, some of yourself and some of your old businesses in those achy drivers as you're going through it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in our radio production company, we had one very large client that represented more than half of our revenue, which was a huge discount factor when we went to sell. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the ad, the ad agency, I was personally too involved and that, that hurt us. In the quantitative market research business, we developed subscription-based revenue, which was a tremendous bonus. Uh, it helped our, our evaluation enormously, among other things. So yes, definitely, I could see some of our mistakes and a couple of things we got right uh, play out in those stats for sure. So I want to bridge the gap for, for our listeners because you went from selling your business and working for the acquirer for a little bit. Then there's this gap that we're uh, missing right now. And then you now have this fantastic company that is helping business owners with the issues that you saw in your business and with the research that you've given. Tell us a little bit of a story about how you got to um, the value builder system and what drove you to do it. Well, yeah, I mean, after I left uh, the company that acquired us, uh, my family and I, we moved to Europe, the uh, our our kids were are still young, but at the time they were very young. They were five and three years old, and so we thought it would be a neat life experience to go live in a different culture. Uh, we thought Europe was exotic enough. We're, we're from Canada, so Europe felt <laughs> exotic but not dangerous, if you know what I mean. So we weren't uh, we weren't thinking too dangerous, but at the same time we thought it would be somewhat exotic. And then we thought, um, okay, so we narrowed it down to to Europe, and so you've got. You know, whatever you've got, Sweden and Finland and Germany and uh, France and Spain and Greece and 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 then we landed on France because as Canadians we thought that it would be practical for our kids to speak a second Enough language. Enough of an overlap with Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, we had a bit of French. We had more French than we did Swedish or German or, or whatever. And so we thought we'd go to France, and then we. Um, we Googled the sunniest place in France, and it turned out to be this little village called Aix-en-Provence, which is down in the south, just uh, just uh, almost towards the Mediterranean, but about an hour and a half uh, uh, from, from, from Nice, if you know where Nice is. Mm -hmm. And so we moved there, and we put our kids in a local school, and uh, my wife and I started to learn French. And, you know, we went to French class every day and, and had a very unique experience. And we lived there for three years. What, was the, um, what did the average day look like when you were there? Well, it evolved, actually, to be honest, Ryan. When, when I first got there, it, it was, um, you know, it sounds glamorous and exotic to, to move to France. And, but it was actually a lot, a lot of kind of, uh, a lot of the, the BS that's involved in moving, right? So especially in another language. Like everything in a different country, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, everything takes like 10 times longer. So I remember one time uh, we decided we wanted to have a barbecue. And so I had a barbecue, but I didn't have, a, a, I didn't have any like uh, propane. So I went to the, you know, the propane, like I went to like uh, the, the garage, like the gas station to look for propane. It turns out they don't sell propane in gas stations that you have to go to like a, like an equivalent of like a Home Depot. So we went there and then, you know, it's, an, it, you know, like you look at an entire wall of different propane tanks. All, all you wanted to do was have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you, you know, you get, you get the right one, but you're not, it, it, they all, all the, the, the mechanism is all different. And so it's, it's like, imagine that 
like times a thousand because everything you want to do, like you want to buy a car, you want to buy a plane ticket, you want to figure out how to get your kids into school. I mean, everything. So in the beginning, it was very, you know, like there were lots of moving parts. And then it it kept you busy. Yeah. And then it settled into this wonderful routine where, uh, you know, we get the kids off of school and I might do a bit of writing. I've joined a cycling club, so I did a lot of cycling and, um, it was a great rhythm in in Europe, as you may know. They they have this kind of rhythm of school where they're six weeks on and then two weeks off. So every two weeks, uh, in particular in, in Southern Europe and, and France in particular, they have two weeks of holiday for the kids every uh, every eight weeks. So it's basically six weeks of school, two weeks of holiday, six weeks of school, two. Weeks. And so we made a commitment early to to travel in each of those two week windows. And so we we traveled all over Europe with the kids. Uh, Barcelona, Italy, uh, England, Wales, uh, Sweden, Switzerland. I mean, the whole, the whole world, huh? the whole continent. Yeah, and it was an amazing, amazing life experience. So, I would highly recommend it. And you know, bringing this back to the topic of exit, I think, you know, I think we are as entrepreneurs uh, in a very unique uh, situation. If you think about virtually any other sort of high-performing career, whether it's uh, you're a corporate executive, you're a lawyer. Uh, you choose to be a doctor, it is very difficult to step off the hamster wheel and and take a three-year break. I think that is one of the tremendous benefits of being an entrepreneur is that you can literally uh, step off the hamster wheel. The, 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 the skill set of being an entrepreneur, being able to identify a unique gap in the marketplace, being able to assemble a team to sort of address the gap, raise money, sell the product, that is a timeless set of skills. They don't atrophy. They don't go. Uh, uh, the you know technical skills will will age, but the 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 core skills of entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I I view my life as sort of life in ten year chunks. I wrote a blog post ages ago about this kind of idea. But you know, as entrepreneurs, we have the luxury of. Of, of, of running a company for a 10-year period, building it up, making it successful, and then stepping off the wheel and taking a sabbatical. It doesn't have to be three years. It can be six months. But trust me when I say that it is very unique to our way of life. There, in, in many other professions, if you take a step off the corporate ladder and say to your boss at um, you know, uh, whatever, Google, that you're leaving for a couple of years, you'll be back – Say goodbye to any sort of upward mobility you saw in your career. Have to it's, restart all over again. I think it's just one of the tremendous benefits uh, that we have, and I think, frankly, should leverage more. Um, you're getting me up on my high horse a little bit. I think a lot of entrepreneurs sort of settle in and they build a successful business up to a million, five million, ten million in sales, and then it's pretty great, right? You're you're making a lot of money. Your all your expenses are being run through the business. Uh, your car, your vacations, you maybe you're pay, paying your spouse, and it then becomes very difficult to step off the hamster wheel and sell the company. But I think in in a lot of ways that's that's you know we're missing out on a tremendous opportunity uh, to sell, go do something else, and and that's what I think brings the creativity to many of us is that is the newness. It's not sort of sitting on a business and keeping the revenue and flat being stagnant. For I actually uh, there's a term called the astronaut syndrome. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, not so. It's it's interesting because a lot of business owners that I know, I, I see this because I think that there's an actual problem going on where. The business owners have built a successful company, but it, it I don't want to say stagnant is the right word, but it's just kind of they're in the motions, right? So I don't know if it's the hamster wheel is a great description, but you know what, what my dad and I both went through is 
the, the astronaut syndrome, the reason that is very applicable, I see, is because you shoot up, you go to the moon, you come back down, you shake the president's hand, and you're 30, and you're going, now what? <laughs> because I just made it. Where so the vision surpasses the actual situation, or the situation actually over-succeeds the actual vision. So now you have to realign the vision, re-identify with what do I want next, and it's very difficult to step, step off that hamster wheel, which, by the way, that hamster wheel kicks out a lot of cash for a lot of people. So understanding how to bridge that gap is a, a big struggle I see with people. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's absolutely true. I, I mean, for, for me, it was uh, starting another company. Eventually, our, our time in France was a wonderful experience, but it did have to come to an end. You know, I felt like we had after three years we had to make a decision either we were going to become French and you know apply for citizenship and 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 really kind of commit to France because our kids were getting to an age where their relationships with their friends were becoming more mature they, they they needed to feel that they were part of a community they couldn't just you know flit around from you know place to place or we needed to go back and and go back to kind of civilization if you will go back to a normal sort of way of life and so we opted to do that in, in part in large measure I think because uh, a, we were ready, but also our, um, you know, we wanted to give a, a somewhat normal upbringing to our kids. So, and so that was important to us. And so and when so, you were, so as yeah. you're kind of going through the, the discovery process of trying to figure out, okay, now it's time to go back to Canada where, where our home is, where describe that situation that you were in, whether it was it writing a piece or a blog post, or was it a, a book? What? What sparked you into the new idea to start building the new hamster wheel, the next uh, tenure chunk as you worded it? Yeah, I mean, I think I was ready to get back into the thrill of the hunt. I, I missed that, um, the adrenaline rush that comes with achievement. And I tried to uh, to scratch that itch with, with sports. So I I, I was involved in, in triathlon and, and marathons and so forth when I was in X, but I never really felt like I was getting that full adrenaline rush of, of the intellectual sort of achievement that comes with, 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 with building a business. So I felt like I needed to build one. And so we had built a uh, – I'd written a book called Built to Sell. And so one of the things we had done for that book was uh, put together a questionnaire that would enable a business owner to see whether their company was sellable. It was like a little bit like a pregnancy test. You know, you pee on the strip and it tells you if you're pregnant or not. Um, doesn't tell you, Ryan, it tells your wife that. By the way. <laughs> um, so, uh, th that questionnaire became quite popular and we actually started, um, getting requests from advisors to license the questionnaire and for, so they could use it in their practice. And so people like business brokers and M&A guys. Mm -hmm. And so kind of light bulb moment, I was coming to the end of our time in France. I was like, Hey, maybe this, this, uh, this assessment questionnaire would, uh, would be something we could license. And so that's what sort of started the thinking down what would eventually become the value builder score to this day our you know the first step in the 12 step process we offer is is to get your value builder score which is which is a a much more robust but essentially a similar questionnaire that we have everybody complete uh, when they start with us, so which is it, the uh, that is the assessment where John was referring to earlier about the average score of fifty nine or the eighty and the difference of the multiples for everybody. And again, I'll put those in the show notes. So um, as you progressed over the last few years, you've it's it's morphed quite a bit. And can you explain like some of the the transition into the from a, an assessment to the the overall package today and kind of what's the What's the driving goal behind you and the mission of the value builder system? 
So our, our driving goal or vision is to be the entrepreneur's Robin Hood. And so what I have come to realize uh, being on the other side of the negotiation table on a number of occasions is that the, the business buyer is a mercenary and they are financial engineers who uh, oftentimes are educated at the finest institutions uh, but could not run a lemonade stand. <laughs> and, and they unfortunately prey on the relative naivete of business owners, right? We're, as entrepreneurs, we're too busy running our companies, serving customers, selling widgets to spend a lot of time thinking about the exit, right? And so all of a sudden we get to the end and either, you know, you hit 65 or you have some sort of health event or you get an offer from somebody and, and you have to go through this process having never gone through it before. And, and, and it, you know, it can be quite hard to ne negotiate the sale of your company. And so what we're trying to do with the value builder system is educate entrepreneurs to sort of level the playing field, uh, to get the power back in the hands so at least the entrepreneurs have a fighting chance to get a decent valuation for their business and get decent exit terms. I mean, I, I can remember when selling my last company, we got an offer from a private equity firm. And, you know, the, the offer was, hey, you know, uh, we're going to buy 50% of your business, uh, but we want you to keep an extra 50% in, you know, we want you to hold 50% of it. We want you to have skin of, in the game. Yeah. Um, we're going to, you know, give you, uh, you know, I can't remember the valuation, but it was, it was, you know, it was a very kind of, uh, you know, average multiple that we Not were being something offered. something that you're like overly excited about. No. And, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the the promise they were making as a PE firm is, hey, but you know we're super smart. You know we're going to really help you scale this business. Uh, and this is this is telling a guy who's been like working sixty to eighty hours a week trying to run it himself. So all of a sudden my back is up a little bit, saying, okay, so what do you know as cocksure MBAs that I don't know that I've been doing this for 10, 10 years? Like, please help me understand this. So I pushed them and I said, okay, so who do you think we're missing? Who do you think we should go sell to that we're not selling to today? And the guy kind of scratched his head again. He hasn't given it much thought. He's he spent more time polishing his presentation than he has. He's got to give the deal to his boss. Yeah, and he says, oh, well, you know, we think you should sell to sports teams. And, you know, at the time, we were in the business of, of selling, you know, very deep technical data to business-to-business uh, -business marketers, technology companies, telephony companies, banks, basically. And here's this, you know, frankly, I can't think of a really polite way of putting it, but here's this guy who is, is off the top of his head saying, oh, we should go sell to sports teams because they're you know, looking to grow their businesses. It was the most asinine thing I've ever heard. And, and I was like, so, so you're somehow going to buy my business for next to nothing. You're going to add inject this brilliant thinking that is completely idiotic. And then we're going to go sell for some huge astronomical multiple down the road, and I'm going to have my second bite of the apple. They are so happy yep. and clean. Huh. And so I was like, no, thank you. And, but again, uh, I had been through the process a few times, so I was a little bit aware of what the P friends, but that I had the luxury of, of knowing that. A lot of entrepreneurs go through that, hear the sales pitch and say, oh, yeah, I get to keep half my equity, and you're going to go sell the other half at some astronomical multiple. And, and they have no idea... Um, the kind of clauses 
and 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 papering that these companies do, uh, basically to have all the cards in their um, you know in their and then use it in, to in just constantly drive down because they they're the, they're the ones that can tear apart financials and cash flow statements and then tell you how much your business is quote unquote worth. We actually went through something similar. Uh, a PE firm out of New York came to us, same similar uh, proposition. Um, we were supposed to write, uh, we spent $40,000 in writing a SIM, which was essentially a strategic business plan that I wrote, gave to them, and then they quote unquote couldn't come up with any buyers. So then they just disappeared. So completely just tore up a big check because they were on this hunt for the for the next deal. Yeah, yeah. There's there's all kinds of other examples like that. Um, you know, venture capitalists are renowned for putting uh, deals together, which basically uh, you know eliminate and have the potential to uh, uh, to dilute entrepreneurs founding next to nothing. I mean, Michael Arrington went before he sold uh, um, his uh, his business, and it's escaping me right now. Um, It'll come to me. Uh, he had a company where he completely, uh, basically lost. He, he, they sold it for thirty-two million dollars, and, and all he got was "quote unquote" enough to buy a Porsche. So he got a, I think he got a couple hundred thousand dollars after thirty building a, a business that he sold to uh, to thirty-two million dollars. Yeah. So they, you know, they basically just uh, completely uh, desecrated his equity position. And they do that. They do that all the time. And they make sure this that this is a good they, transition. <laughs> oh, sorry to interrupt. No, I was just going to say, they, they just make sure they win. They, they have an incredible ability to make sure they win. And they prey on uh, you know, naive or, in some cases, desperate entrepreneurs. Again, you asked me what gets us excited and gets us out of bed. It's, it's fixing that. Protecting the seller, right? Because these, these business owners sacrifice their whole life, their, their time, their resources, their time with their kids, all that stuff. And then at the last second all of a sudden have this whirlwind and then you walk and it's, it's almost like this tornado just went by and you have to like pick up the pieces to figure out what happened. And that's, you know, one of the main missions of this podcast is to continue to bring the listener all the information that I wish I would have because my dad and I went through that same situation. And one of the things that you said that really sparked uh, and hit home for me is you got a random offer from the PE firm, which, you know, straightened up your back. So I think our listeners have that same situation where you're on that hamster wheel and from the information that I've gathered, the triggering event is usually either some personal issue that is way unforeseen or a random offer. So there's there's this window where people, when it's going well, they don't think about this until something happens. So explain or maybe is, do you have one piece of advice for the listeners of how to avoid that situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, it sounds trite, but but do it sooner than you think is natural. I was just interviewing a guy for my podcast yesterday, and and he he said timing is everything, and he was in the media business, and he sold long form advertiser to infomercial folks, and he had built his company up, got it to seventy million in revenue, and 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 kind of had the sense that they were coming to the end of a cycle, and so he sold it in the fall of two thousand seven. Well, everybody 
knows what happened to the advertising market in 2008, 2009, 2010. I mean, it went completely uh, pear-shaped, and, and, but he was able to get out. And, and what he expressed to me was it felt so counterintuitive that uh, to, to be selling a company that was, was succeeding on such a high level. It had been you know, growing at such an amazing rate that it feels so counterintuitive. And, and it will, I think, yeah, you, you'll know you're about to have a great exit when it feels wrong. <laughs> the catch-22 behind that is just ridiculous. And then when you, when you feel like you want it more than anything in the world, like you desperately want out, you're going to have a bad exit <laughs> because it's just you're, you're going to get preyed on. Well, you got no leverage. And I, you know, uh, I just interviewed an individual who when you've got time and you can walk away is the best time to sell, unfortunately, like you said. And, you know, one of the things that our, our listeners struggle with is, you know, you're so passionate about your business that that's where you wake up. That's why you bounce out of bed. So, you know, some of the things that we've been talking to our listeners about is building a second career so you can actually go on to that next something and you can refunnel your focus and your passion into something else at the same time while using certain metrics to, to build the value of your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, for sure. When it, as from all the businesses that you have um, interviewed or you've witnessed, what is what does the team look like that should help the business owner through this transition? Well, it's it's really having an M and A professional uh, or a business broker, depending on the size of your company. Uh, so an intermediary representing you. You don't sell your house without an agent, so you, you need somebody to 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 run the process for you. And I, you also need a corporate, uh, like a deal lawyer. And I would caution you that there is a big difference between the guy who incorporated your company or the, you know, the person who wrote your contract for your employees and a deal lawyer. So a deal lawyer is, is, uh, you know, is steeped in the intricacies of a share purchase agreement. It, that's what they do. They sell companies. And it's very rare that the person who sells companies is also incorporating companies and writing HR policy. It's just not done. And so a lot of times what a business owner will do is, is, is kind of have a lawyer for 20 years and then turn to the lawyer and say, oh, hey, you know, we're selling the company. I need you to help me you know, make sure it's all legal. And, and that's a disaster. It, it, what happens is the lawyer's job is to protect you and that they're, they're doing their job in doing that. But they're also fighting for deal points that that you had, you know the selling of your business there, there is compromise there's middle ground right and so you need a lawyer who understands that who understands that hey you're not going to win every battle that some points the choir is going to die on that hill for and and you've got to have somebody who is who is who, who understands that selling is is a give and take it's not just a you know, if you use the lawyer who incorporated your company, you won't get the deal done because their job is to ensure they protect you at all costs. And so you're going to have, uh, you know, reps and warranties they're not going to agree to, an escrow they're not going to agree to, wording in the agreement they're not going to agree to. And, and the good deal lawyer will say, all these things are, are, are not what we want, but if we want to get the deal done, I'd suggest we give on this point, uh, die on the mat on this point. And, and so there's a give and take. And again, it's, it's an art. And so you want a deal lawyer. Uh, you don't want a sort of run-of-the-mill lawyer who does lots of different things uh, because they're not the right person. Yep, and that's a good point. Um, and for our listeners, you know, to piggyback on what John just said is making sure that those professionals too are, all, are typically on the sell side or that you're making sure that they're on the sell side so they're not actually working on another buyer's behalf 
Um, and also, you know, when you're a lot of our listeners, John, are what we call the freedom fighters are the people that have built a business that have been in it for a long time that are trying to transition out of it and have, you know, generally decent relationships with their CPA or their attorney or their banker. And uh, one of the things that I heard on an M&A panel recently coming from all those professionals is that, you know, if they're the typical, you know, corporate professional in those different areas, you know, they're also working themselves out of a client. So there's something to be said about having the deal person who understands what that give and take looks like. So that way you're not giving up too much because you just want to get the deal done and or not giving enough because, you know, a professional might want to keep you as a client depending on the situations. Um, a couple more questions. I know we got to run here pretty soon. In your perspective, what does a successful exit look like? Uh, you know, I think a successful ex- exit is where um, the entrepreneur gets a fair you know, market value or premium over what the market value is. That they so there's a there's a there's an economic event that happens that they are happy with that they feel like they were treated fairly. Um, and that they have something else to go to. Um, in our case, it was planning a trip to Europe and, and going to live in another culture for three years. Uh, in your case, it might be you know, starting another business, writing a book, getting involved in philanthropy, what, whatever it is. But, but you know, I think we all know people who sort of live you know, in the, in the golden years, the back in the good old days when I owned a business, I had prestige, I had whatever, you know, their perception of, of, of what those days were like. And, and I think that's living in the rear of your mirror. And I think it's, it's, you've got to go, at least I, you know, maybe I'll speak for myself. I, I need to have something in front of me. I need to have a goal. I need to have a new thing to sink my teeth into. So I think there's a practical reality, Ryan, where it's like, Hey, you got to get a decent multiple for your company. Um, and you know, maybe that's not a Google like multiple, but at least it's a multiple that's at least fair market rate or better. And, uh, and that you go right off in the sunset and do something else. Great. And then what's one piece of advice you'd leave to our listeners? Um, yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of, of repeating myself, I think it would be, uh, to, to do it sooner than later. If you are entrepreneurial and you get that sense that you enjoy the building, the creativity, the winning and the management doesn't excite you, um, you know, don't get lulled into a sense of satisfaction because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're pulling in 500 grand a year and you, you, you know, you you got all your expenses paid for and you're living high on the hog. Those, you know, that can, that complacency that can set in from, from living relatively high on the hog, I think is, is, um, uh, detracts from, I think your quality of life. And I think if you've done it once, there's nothing to suggest you won't be able to replicate it again. Uh, those skills are, there is no half-life on entrepreneurial skills. I believe they, they are with you for life. And so you can apply them to the business you're in today, but you can also go, uh, if it's reached a plateau beyond which you can't, grow it, um, someone else will, will inject some, uh, some enthusiasm for it. So, you know, let it have wings and sell it and go do something else. I love that. And then I'm going to, there's a, there's a book called the happiness advantage, uh, by Sean Accor. And, uh, the, his, his definition of happiness is like one of the sweetest ones that I've seen where it's, it's the joy you experience in the pursuit of your potential. So when a lot of the business owners that I know that when they hit that potential and they've already kind of accomplished it it's trying to figure out how to redirect and then like you said 
constantly be in that pursuit. So I, I have very, very good advice. Um, where can everybody find you today? Valuebuilder.com. That's where you can learn about the value builder system. You can get your score. Uh, and you know, if, if you want, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at John Warlow and that's spelled W A R I L O W. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on today. Thank you, Ron.